welcome to We're Not Wizards. We are the best, but not wizards. Enjoy the show! With the name Frank West, is you have to do the Pet Shop Boys kind of Frank. <laughs> you know what I mean? Frank West, he likes to make some things. Frank West, like the city of kings. Frank West, he's along to chat. Frank West, maybe like the Isle of Cats. Frank West, <laughs> he's been through time. Frank West, still not being committed of crimes. Frank West, he's here to talk. And possibly splash water all over his microphone. Tell me about it. <laughs> hey, Frank. It's been far too long. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing well. How about you? Yes. It's been far too long. I mean, we're past the kind of the pleasantries where we kind of ask each other how we are. We can just kind of go, kind of go straight in it. For people who aren't aware, Frank West, some seven, seven years ago, seven years ago, Frank West, Frank West sent me the most famous email of all time, <laughs> to which Frank West, this was at City of Kings, I, I, I love this story because it shows <laughs> it shows how absolutely horrible as a person I am, but Frank West emailed me and uh, and, 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 and was talking about City of Kings and, and kind of talked about uh, kind of like, you know, um, you know, he mentioned, you know, about wizards things and I quickly wrote back and said, sorry, not interested, no wizards. And that was it. <laughs> The first contact. <laughs> and uh, then I obviously had to write back to him pretty quickly and explain that I was kind of like joking. Um, and so it's kind of gone on from there. Now. And you wonder why I've not been on the show for nearly five years. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, it's kind of, because every time we try to arrange it, it's kind of like a cancel it last time. Like last time it was like, oh, I have to take my, you know, I have to take my cat out for a walk. Um, and then it escaped and then it never came back. And the truth was, I don't have a cat. And I never take them for a walk. I did do it. I have got a dog now, you know that. Yeah, no, I and I do have cats. Like I heard you talking to um <laughs> Jamie <laughs> a while ago saying that you guys never hear me talking about no, my cats. I do have cats. I, I have you. multiple cats. I've had many cats in my life. I don't I have hats hats. I have hats as well. <laughs> I've got cats in two different homes at the moment. And wow. one of them's gonna come and visit me soon, right. which I'm very much looking forward to as well. Good. So a little cat holiday. Um, but I do have cats. Yeah, I, I need to put that out there, definitely. This is kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like you've been speaking about me with Jamie, with Jamie Stegmaier, and I heard you talking, I heard you talking cat about me in the denial. And it's just because, uh, you okay, so your name came up because of a couple of reasons. And one of them is you've gone down, you've gone down a kind of a bit of a Jamie Stegmaier route that I've noticed, which is there's people that are very, very good at kind of marketing games and there's people very, very good at creating a community. And there's people very, very good at kind of the game design. And it's very rare. And I've taken a vow of being nice. And it's very rare to meet somebody that's got the capabilities to do all three. So City of Kings was something that came along. And 
there was a whirlwind of kind of praise. It was a, it seemed to be like this kind of brand new kind of exciting idea. And at the time it kind of funded very, very well. And then you kind of went from, it's really funny. You kind of went from the city into the garden <laughs> with Fedora gardens. And then, and then you decided you had enough of being in the gardens. And then you decided to go and settle yourself on kind of, on, on kind of an island, kind of an island in the mid time we had been speaking on and off about kind of like rising rising blades as well which i'm assuming is is sitting in kind of like a i've got the notepad here because you've sent it to me um i guess the first the first question is has a success because the isle of cats has now got raced you know raced the raft but has the success of isle of cats has that has that caused you to reassess the direction that City of Games is going to go in as a company now that City, now that basically Isle of Cats is like everywhere? I think it's a really interesting question and I would be lying if I said that the answer to this doesn't change every so often Mm. because there's lots and lots of views on life. There's lots of views on, you know, what you want to do. And for me, the City of Kings, the first game, was the game where I sat down and said, this is the game that I want. Yeah. You know, I'm not designing this for other people. Back then, the dream of being a big board game publisher wasn't even a thing. It was a hobby project that evolved over time. And then, as I did that, the City of Kings was hugely successful. You know, it allowed me to build this into a career. It funded future games. It generated income. And, you know, and the game is still selling. We have a print that's going to be coming out in a few months, and it'll be back into stores and kind of back into promotions through various stuff. So seven years later, that game's still going, and I still love it. I literally have it set up on the desk in front of me right now, <laughs> and I was playing it just before we talked. I could show you, like, pieces where I've been playing the game. And then... After I did this, and Vidoran Gardens was always like a small side project, yeah. right? It was a fun idea, which I really enjoyed. It was never like this big, let's spend years developing a game. It just happened alongside. So I kind of sat down and went, you know, I'm there now. So what happens if I design a game with other people in mind? You know, what if I stop yeah. being selfish and still design the game I want, but design a game that can sell? and tick boxes, you know, and back then I talked about how I wanted solo modes, I wanted to have lots of players and so on, accessible family and all of this. And it worked out very well and was hugely, hugely successful. And what that's done is it's now given me opportunity to decide what I want to do. So on one side, there's the business side that turns around and goes, hey, do something similar to that, it's going to make more money and blah, 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 blah. On the other side, there's the what about if I design another game for me? Because now I can afford to take more risks. Now I can afford to invest more money and I can do something that's a lot more niche because whilst obviously I want it to be successful, I don't need it to be Isle of Cat successful. I just need it to do well enough to cover the investment. And then at the end of that, I get some really cool niche games. So I'm kind of going back and forward at the moment where... I feel like I'm going to alternate between those two things. And at the moment, there's a lot of focus. And I say at the moment, obviously, after Race to the Raft, because that's done and been done. But at the moment, the game I'm working on, which I haven't talked about publicly, and I'm not going to, is a very selfish game in the sense of it's the game that I want next 
for me. And I'm still obviously thinking about how other people would enjoy it and yeah. how it would become a sellable thing. But if the art of cats hadn't have done as well as it could, I don't think I could take as much of a risk on this game. So it's a curious one where, yes, at one point I did go, hey, maybe I should just make more games like this because yeah. then I'm going to be successful and I can make a company and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But actually, me being me, I want to design the games that I love and I don't really care whether I'm making some money or lots of money as long as I'm affording to live and I'm able to do the things I want to do then I want to make the things that I want to make and I'm really kind of set in that mindset right now so it's gonna it's gonna be interesting yeah. the, the next game is gonna be an interesting one you sound like you're in the same situation I had um uh Keith Mateka and Justin DeWitt on and mm-hmm. Keith does obviously role player and uh, for Thunderworks, Justin's got Castle Panic. So those those are those those are their evergreen games. Castle yes. Panic. He just you know they'll run up. They were talking about running another print of Castle Panic and just after the big box kind of putting it out there. Um, Keith about um, kind of role player was yeah role player is just one of the, another one of these with cartographers as well that just kind of yes. trundles along. Hugely successful games. So, so are you? Are you kind of now in the kind of the slightly approaching the kind of the that kind of I'd even put Jamie I mean Jamie there with obviously wingspan and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not talking about the big publisher guys like your big Hasbro's and stuff of this world. I'm talking about guys from your kind of end where you've come into the Kickstarter, coming through the crowdfunding side of things, and now you've kind of like got an evergreen game. So you're taking away the kind of the you said it's, it's almost like you're kind of taking away the risk for stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had to have you had to learn a whole new set of skills to deal with the kind of the distribution and stuff like that? Because to me, Kickstarter is fund the thing, get the thing printed and manufactured, get that stuff distributed and get it out there. And now are you not are you in the situation where it's like I'm continually having to look at potential print runs. But then have you also had to look at the effect of like the the recent logistic prices? I mean, did that did that have an effect on on yourself kind of recently? Yeah, it does. It's kind of um <clears throat> it's one of those things where every aspect of this is different. You know, people talk about being a publisher and what mm. that means and Kickstarter or crowdfunding in general is one approach to that. Then you have people who sell directly through their own web stores. You have people who just sell through Amazon. You have people who sell through retail and distribution. You have people who sell through the mega stores. You have people who do translations. You have people that do their own translations or part of the translations. And each of these things is an entirely different type of business. You know, you have to approach it and do it in different ways. So over the years, I've certainly learned more and I've learned to adapt and I've learned to kind of change and approach things differently but when you when you take away all of the polish you're still left with manufacture a game ship that game to the right location and send someone an invoice and whether that is a Kickstarter where you're sending 10,000 games to 10,000 people Mm. or a distributor where you're selling 10,000 games to one warehouse, the processes are still very, very similar. The only real difference is the communications and correspondence because with a Kickstarter, you need to send out updates. You want to keep them exciting. You want to make sure people are reassured. You need to make sure you're ticking the boxes of telling them what's happened, talking about problems and delays. Whilst distributors 
once they've placed the order, they don't really care until it's ready. Yeah. You know, you don't want to send them a weekly update saying, hey, just so you know, <laughs> we're still on track. Order number 498,273, the Art of Cats times 1,000, will be with you in nine and a half months. You know, like, they don't really care. So obviously you do still update them, but it's a much, like, more loose thing. So you learn there's different types of communications, like translation partners, again, you have to learn that a translation partner, they know their market better than you. Yeah, I can't walk into France and sell a French copy of the Isle of Cats to a French board game store. Well, you're not because... you're not allowed in France, are you? You're, you're bad. <laughs> <laughs> not since that croissant incident. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but, um, but you know, but it's my job to trust that they can do that element. Yeah. My job in that role is to help ensure that they have the best quality version of my game in their language and that they get it into their hands. So you learn that like there's different steps and different parts and the, the crowdfunding side is without a doubt the hardest. It's the most time consuming. It's the most challenging. It's the one where like the most can go wrong but at the same time, it's the most enjoyable one. Yeah. Because out of all of them, it's the one where you're dealing with people. You're not dealing with businesses. You're not talking to, you know, these giant conglomerates that just don't really care about you. And obviously not all distributors and stuff like that, but some are. But with Kickstarters, you're talking to individuals and it's a much more community-driven thing. And if you do a good job, they'll be excited, they'll be happy, and you can collaborate and you can work together. And for me, it's it's a joy. Like, it's a real joy. All the rest of it is very businessy. And business is fine. I do business fine. I'm good at business. You know, I'm reliable. I get stuff done. Yeah. But it's business. At that point, I might as well be sending you a screwdriver. I might as well be sending you a hammer. Like, it doesn't matter. So it's it's different. And you do have to adapt. But I wouldn't say that I do things too differently uh-huh uh-huh has it been because you you've got the kind of the isle of cats kind of facebook group and things like that so has it been strange having to kind of continually kind of maintain not maintain it but duck your head in it time and time and just check see that things are ticking over answer questions and stuff like because normally as we're both aware in quick kickstarter campaigns there's a huge month of noise or two weeks of noise and of intensity yeah. where you're kind of you're checking your phone all the time just for check for messages and then afterwards there's a p- huge period of silence now with obviously with isle of cats you've got this community you've got like people you've got like not just kind of one set of people now you've got a couple of sets of people who have now taken the product on for kind of the first time as well as all the people that have bought it through mm-hmm. retail so is that again another kind of extra tasks that you've got to do to kind of keep that community kind of going it is but again it's kind of it's a nice thing because i used to find pre-board game world that a lot of the stuff i did at work felt like i was putting stuff into the void and it disappeared yeah. whilst with this it's nice to see it still alive you know was it um on friday or saturday like you know a few days ago I was sitting and someone posted in the City of Kings Facebook group and said, hey, like, I'm playing this at the moment, blah, 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 blah. And it's so nice, you know, that game that I worked on seven years ago, yeah. someone is getting it out 
and it's new to them or they're showing it to someone or they're teaching it to someone and it makes you realize that these things are still persisting out there but you know i wake up in the morning and i go to my computer i open up um, google chrome and then I open Board Game Geek, I open Twitter, I open Instagram, I open Facebook, I go to the City of Games page on Facebook, I go to the City of Kings group, I go to the Articats group, the Vidoran Gardens group, the Race to the Raft group, I then go and check the Kickstarter page, I check the project update comments, I go and check the project comments, I then go to GameFound and I check the comments on GameFound, and then once a week I go to my old projects and check the comments on those as well because they still get stuff once yeah, in a while. Yeah. And then I go to my inbox and deal with the 200 emails I've had overnight. And I spend the first hour, two hours of every single day of my life, seven days a week mm. doing that. And if I do have a day off at a weekend because something's come up or I'm at a show, I spend four hours the next day doing it. I don't see that as a chore because it's a nice thing. It's an enjoyable mm. thing. And it's nice to keep it alive. And there's nothing that makes me happier than seeing those comments. You know, that is for me, the ultimate satisfaction, because as soon as you see a comment, you know that someone is engaging with it, they're enjoying it, they're happy with it, they're playing it. And it reminds you that there are people, you're not just making stuff and it's being on a shelf, you know? yeah, <laughs> which, yeah. which happens a lot. So I do find that very rewarding. If you had if you had the kind of the resources behind you, would you skip out kind of Kickstarter in the future? No, absolutely not. I am. Um, well, I'll rephrase that. In my current circumstances, yeah, I would not. Uh -huh. Obviously, um, what I mean by that is not so much financial resource, but in terms of where my fingers are that sounds weird but let me explain <laughs> um i just like to point I out mean... i can't actually see frank's hands at the moment so i, don't, <laughs> I have no idea where his fingers are <laughs> what i am um, what i mean by this is i well there's two parts yeah. one of them is i like to do deluxified games i like to do like the all-in yeah. kind of you get the upgraded stuff you get the ultimate experience and that doesn't work for retail so if you do go straight to retail i'm not doing that because i don't have the ability to sell those deluxe versions directly through my own web store i just don't have that sizable amount of stuff yet so for me as soon as i go to retail it means we're doing the most basic version so for example the reprint of the art of cats the reprint of the art of cats came with the big two minute box which is the big storage solution yeah. it came with um like the kickstarter pack expansions if i hadn't have done that kickstarter the big box wouldn't exist the kickstarter pack with all of the upgraded pieces wouldn't exist it would just be the base game and it would just be the standard basic expansion and to a lot of people that would be okay but to the hardcore hobbyist group there's a community aspect that comes from those kickstarters that those extra nice products adds on to the but what i meant by the kind of the fingers in the pies is if i release the game straight in retail tomorrow yeah i do not think that i would be successful in marketing that game because what i know right now is how to market a kickstarter 
what I know right now is how to get people to know about a Kickstarter, how to present a game on Kickstarter, the drip feeding of information, the slow buildup, the big reveal. These are things that I do very well, but I don't have the ability to do that into retail in the same way. And maybe in five years time, I will have more fingers and more pies and more connections. And I will feel like my, marketing force for want of a better word will be powerful enough to do that straight to retail offering but for me right now it is just something that i can't do and i because i don't have that kind of reach and because i only want to release one game every 12 to 18 months like that's still my pattern right i'm not trying to do multiple games a year i can't afford to take a risk on a game just because, oh, let's see if I can do it in retail straight away, right? You know, if I spend a year and a half working on a game, invest, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into that, and then go, hey, let's skip Kickstarter and chuck it straight into retail, and no one turns up, I'm kind of screwed, and I need to just try and build it up. So what I'm trying to do is I'm doing experiments with that. So one of the things I'm going to do... in the near future, I don't want to talk too much because I've not announced it at all, is that I'm planning to do an expansion straight to retail. And that will be the first time that I've done anything that's gone straight to retail and not through Kickstarter. So for me, that is an experiment because doing an expansion straight to retail feels like a safer, less risky option than doing a game. And you know, in a year's time, I'll come back and you can be like, how did that go? And I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, going back to, again, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, that's what, that's what's happened with like things like cartographers. Again, it's like, it's got little expansions to it. You know, Castle Panic has got little expansion to it. I mean, Wingspan has got a couple of little expansions because you've got mm-hmm. the player base and even if you get like a kind of a 60% kind of uptake on it or even a 40% uptake, it's more, no, then it's going to cover the kind of the, you've got the basic theme, you know what you're doing. You're kind of, you're really just kind of maybe printing, you're maybe adding a couple of additional mechanics, Mm -hmm. but normally it's kind of like, you know how the game plays, you know how it flows, you know how it's going to receive. You've probably got an entire list of of people who you know can help you kind of provide coverage on the game and stuff like that as well. Um, with the success of Race to the Raft and Isle of Cats, are we going to see like a Rising Blades, or do you feel a little bit kind of I kind of need to stay? Is this okay? Let me let me reframe that slightly differently. Is this a surprise that the really big hit was kind of like the joyous, colourful, family-friendly game? Because I remember City of Kings us having the discussion, it was like, you like Dark Souls. It's like, yeah. And this is here, let, what do you think about Dark Souls? And I was like, oh, well, you, you've kind of got your different kind of stats, you level up. And it's like, that's exactly it. So to me, 2016 Frank West is slightly different from what happened in kind of like 2021 and 2023 Frank West. So is Rising Blades becoming something that's kind of, it's almost moving from being kind of like something that's definitely looking at to maybe this is going to be a cheeky side project that I'm maybe going to take on at some time. So 
in regards to bigger, more complex, like, you know, as I refer to them as kind of my black box, yeah, white yeah. box games, yeah. City of Kings, Rising Blade were black box, and Vidoran Gardens, Articats, and Racer Raph were white box, which kind of deemed them whether they're more heavy games or more like lighter, accessible games. Yeah. Um, absolutely like there will be more and i am working on more so the the game i was just talking about earlier that i'm working on currently which is the more risky game is very much on that side of things which is why i would deem it risky because by default it's a game that's going to have a smaller audience because it is aimed more at gamers yeah. as opposed to you know the person who walks into the local shop but with um rising blade specifically um, that game is a game that has been killed off now and won't be coming back. There's a chance that I will bring back a new game that uses the same name and the same story, but it's a completely different game or something <laughs> right, like okay. that. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of artwork, there's a lot of lore, there's a lot of stuff there. But in terms of what that game was, yeah. it was killed off. And this is a really interesting thing because... For me, this is where I feel that perhaps I differ to some people, is that Rising Blades was a game that I spent over a year of my life working on. I invested considerable money on it. All of the artwork is done. Mm. You know, there are miniatures that are sculpted, like, and the tooling is done. You know, like, it is finished like all of the meeples all of the pieces the custom stuff like that is a game i could send to a factory tomorrow and barring you know updating my company logo on the back and yeah. like tweaking the rule book it's good to go and it was very 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 close to coming out you know all of the playtesting feedback was this is great i really love it i really enjoy it but i have one measurement and this measurement is fundamental to me as a person and that is that i want to stand in front of someone with the game look them in the eyes and tell them that this game is the best this game can be mm. and with that game there was always something that niggled at me there was always something that just dug into the back of my head and just said there is something that's not quite perfect yeah and i spent about 18 months trying to work out what i wanted to do with that and at the end i got to the point where i just said i'm just going to put it to one side and move on yeah. because i think that like I would have to basically rework that game from scratch to get past where that issue is. And it's a funny one because I think that many publishers would be happy to move forward with it because it is a good game. It's a really enjoyable game, still completely unique today. There's nothing else out there that's like it. And it does bring me a sadness to know that it's not going anywhere, but it is important to my core that every game I release, I have 100% pure truthful confidence about it and that's not something i say as a marketing person trying to like set a game that's something i say as an individual who lost a small fortune on a project because that decision was more important to me than the kind of financial aspect of that but then because I, I completely understand because i can imagine it would be easy to put something out there to keep the black box people kind of happy mm -hmm. if you know what i mean the folk that had kind of jumped into city of kings and went and, and, and you know heard what you were talking about and then went so where is the next one and it's like yep. it's like it's almost a case of well he's got his success with his white box stuff 
So that'll be him. The next it'll be cat themed games from kind of mm-hmm. now on, which is which it is com- kind of completely kind of completely understandable. Um, and yeah, and and there's a touch on that because obviously they're different audiences and they're different vibes. But I'm going to roughly make these numbers up. But from what I remember, the number of subscribers the Rising Blade Board Game Geek entry had on Board Game Geek yeah. was higher than the number of subscribers the Isle of Cats had on Board Game Geek after the Kickstarter for Isle of Cats had finished. Wow! So the interest in Rising Blades was very, very high. Mm. And um, the Isle of Cats was a much more gradual thing. And again, this comes down to the fact that is more of a mass market game versus like a hardcore hobbyist game. And especially back then, that was more the audience of those platforms. But that was always an interesting measurement to me. But on the other hand, you have to say to yourself, if I hadn't have shelved Rising Blades, I wouldn't have released The Art of Cats. So (laughs) I was going to use, I'm going to use a terrible pun here. It is literally a double, (laughs) a double edged sword, isn't it? (laughs) You know, with Rising Blades, you know. Yeah. And I'll always remember that kind of thought because regardless of whether I should have published Rising Blades, regardless of whether I do in the future or not, I made the right decision back then Mm -hmm. when you look at the results because the results of that have been great. So as much as it was a hard decision at the time, I'm, I'm very glad that I made that decision now looking back on it. I think the other thing is... And this is this is I've seen this and I've almost kind of I guess put fingers to keyboard on this, which is in relation to rising I could see rising blades being something that people would go would love and go crazy for. And they'd be like a bright spark. And that bright spark would last like three or four months. Mm-hmm. And then board gamers like to chase the next kind of hotness. To the point there's so my view on it, there's so many games coming out <laughs> that there's almost like this collective madness when a particular game kind of comes out that everybody's kind of got to get their hands on. Recently it was heat. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. it's you know, people are talking about Earth in the same way. You know, there was obviously there was always there was always like your kind of your brass Birmingham's at this time. Mm-hmm. You know, terraforming Mars for a while. You couldn't you know, terraforming Mars was so popular that Chinese kind of uh, manufacturers decided to make knockoff versions of it because they could know they could sell it because people would buy that game even if they knew that the art was going to be you know probably if you bought <laughs> if you bought a knocked off copy of um of terraforming mars the art artwork might be better um <laughs> come after me bonacore i'll take you on come on <laughs> we'll have words in the car park uh, i think that the um the art style of terraforming Mars is very unique and it achieves a goal. And, um, you know, like whether or not you're happy with the goal that it's set out to achieve is, is an artistic personal it's, opinion. Look, but, it's uh, not an artistic personal opinion. It's literally got the paperclip coming up and it goes, it looks like you're trying to use clip art to make a board game. Would you like some help? I mean, that's, you know, I've, it's an interesting one because the, one of the things I would say, okay is artwork, especially good artwork, is not cheap. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to The Art of Cats, I had a decision with The Art of Cats because The Art of Cats has the cat tiles and it also has cards in your hands. Mm -hmm. And the cards in your hand 
have no like unique pictures. No, they're fairly the artwork on yeah, them. Standard cards, yeah. The cattile stuff that I've pulled in. Yeah. And there was a big discussion piece around do I want to, like a lot of card games do, you know, have the top half as a unique image that's been drawn and so on for it. And I looked into it at that point in time, it was going to cost multiple tens of thousands of dollars to get the artwork to the quality that I would want to where I would want it to be. And that would be on top of the small fortune I already paid into getting hundreds of unique cats and all of the other stuff done for the game. So in the defense of Terraforming Mars, I can understand when you have a game that has so many hundreds of cards, when you're not sure how well the game's going to do, because you never know, right? Now going back, it would be a very different discussion because the risk is very, very different, but it's very, very hard. And now the other side of it is, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'm just trying to use it myself as an example here. I'm very happy with how the cards in Articats have turned out. And actually, I think that it was the right option. But let's say today I turn around and went, hey, the Articats has done really well. You know, let's re-release it with new artwork. Now you've got a couple of things. Firstly, with the number of expansions, that cost of tens of thousands of dollars is now three or four times higher yeah. because there are 350, 400 cards in that game. Yeah. Now, secondly, you've now got the situation where, well, what do you do? Do you just say, well, all new versions moving forward are going to have the new artwork. And if you've got the old version, you have to buy a new version. What happens if you go to a shop and you buy an expansion? Is that expansion going to have the artwork or is it not going to have the artwork? So if you've got the game that doesn't have the artwork, do you now have to have two completely parallel sets of the game, two completely parallel sets of all of the expansions and market them and sell them in different ways? And I can see why when you've made that decision up front, you have to stick with it because yeah. once you've got it out there, it's there's no change yet, you know, unless you do some special edition which has its own problems. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, my whole terraforming Mars thing is an ongoing joke, it is literally mm-hmm. like an on a thing that has been going on kind of for years. But I guess my thing was that, um, with what I was saying about maybe Rising Blades is it probably would have shone for about three, three, four months. Mm-hmm. And then people would have went, oh, what's the, what's the next biggest thing? Whereas Isle of Cats just still seems to keep kind of going and going and going. Do you still, one of the things that you used to do all the time and you were pretty, I noticed all the time, is you were constantly playing kind of games. Mm-hmm. Now, with you being in the situation where you kind of, are you still as involved in the games? Being in a kind of the situation where you're kind of like, you've got your key properties, you're making sure it's kind of running. Do you still kind of stop and say, right, I need to make sure, I need to go and play a couple of games just to get the fun in, just to make sure I'm just keeping up with the kind of new mechanics that are happening and stuff like that as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I... I mean, I enjoy playing board games, so Mm. I do play board games frequently and often. I would say that, um, as I'm sure with a lot of people, obviously during the pandemic period of time, my amount of board games was a lot lower. And at the moment, um, 
you know, I don't really talk about this publicly because it's not something that people really need to know about, but I'm trying to work through the process of like moving house. So obviously in that yeah. situation, it's much harder to have the place to play games and all of that. But outside of those kind of big life moments that really make it hard to have that time. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. I um, So I went to Aircon recently, which is a UK-based um, board game convention. Mm-hmm. I think I played like 30, 35 different games during that weekend <sighs> because... I was just like, I just want to play new stuff. I don't want to play anything I've played before. But also, um, obviously, I still do a considerable amount of playtesting, which is different to what you're talking about. But Race to the Raft, which is the newest game, Mm. that one was a game that really pushed the playtesting side to a challenging area. Because if you take the base game of Race to the Raft and the Kickstarter content, there are 109 different scenarios. Wow. So... If you think about playtesting a game, I personally playtested all of those scenarios multiple times. Hmm. So, for example, in January this year, there was a two-week period where I played all 109 of them. So I was playing, you know, between five and ten a day for two weeks straight. So things like that have like that drastically eaten up to the amount of other games i could play during that time because whilst with something like arna cats well obviously you still need to play test it a lot it's a very very different prospect to here's 109 unique scenarios and each of them need playing so i find that it goes in peaks and troughs and i very much you know still very much enjoy playing games but also importantly to myself and my core is I still very much enjoy playing video games. And I still take as much inspiration from video games as I do from board games. Because if you go back to the City of Kings, the City of Kings for me was always a, how do I turn the video games I love into the board games? And the new project I'm working on in the background is very much a, how do I take a different type of video game and turn that into a board game? Because that is where a lot of my kind of passion comes from. What's turning your head in video games at the moment? Um, like as of specifically right now today, yes. Um, I would say the one I'm most interested in is Diablo Four because I really like um ARPGs and Diablo Four is coming out um in about three weeks yeah. and they're currently doing like public beta testing, so it's a brand new game. You can't really play it yet very much, yeah. and I'm very excited. Diablo was a game that the first Diablo I would run back after school and play, you know, at my friend's house kind of yeah, 30 odd years ago nearly. Yeah. And I absolutely love that game and have enjoyed a lot of other ARPGs. Diablo was, yeah, it was a genre, genre defining, I think mm-hmm. you would call it. I think people absolutely. got absolutely so kind of excited. Um, oh, and it's still, it's still very, say- very, it's still very, very good fun. I'm I'm someone who I um, watch a lot of Twitch streamers playing video games because I don't get as much time to play them myself these days. Um, I always have streams on. So when I'm working from home, I will have streams of video games being played. So I would say that I consume probably between 40 and 50 hours of video game content a week. But that's not necessarily me playing it. And it's not necessarily me just watching it, but it's me paying attention to key moments and understanding what's going on and listening and seeing those journeys kind of happen. So definitely a considerable amount of stuff comes from that side. Yeah. um, I've, I've, I think 
I think like a lot of, well, maybe like a lot of people, there was a huge kind of everybody watching Twitch when the kind of the pandemic mm. kicked off. And I think my watching on Twitch has certainly kind of dropped. There's still a kind of kind of couple of key people that I kind of that I kind of do check into, but it's not as much as it used to, because you used to just have something on in the background just to kind of keep um, mm-hmm. things going. There was um, there was one guy I always used to watch. who used to just stream uh, Bloodborne constantly. Yep, <laughs> and you're just watching this. You weren't watching this person like. Can, oh, it's almost like seeing a master conduct, kind of like a maestro conduct a symphony orchestra. They just knew exactly where to be and exactly mm-hmm. the right time. And no matter how I went, try to go back and kind of emulate it. I just, um, yeah, absolute disaster kind of always hold. I myself have been, um, I've been more renting out games than actually buying them. Um, oh, interesting. Because there's a, there's a company I, I, I kind of, use called Boomerang, um, mm-hmm. and we're not sponsored by them, but um, you rent games, and you just pay, you pay a small fee every month, and compared to the price of games nowadays, which is like yes. 60, 70 quid, you can literally kind of rent them out. They send you out the... It's like... Um, it's like love, like the old it's like love film. It's pretty yeah. much like love film for video games. So I was playing uh, Forspoken, um, okay. which is um, the best... Uh, I don't know. You've started the sentence with the best, so I mean... It's kind of the best that's... PlayStation 4 game you can get on a PlayStation 5 at the moment. It's not <laughs> It's not bad, but it follows so many bad kind of... Do you remember bad PlayStation 4 games where you had cutscenes that you couldn't skip and kind of miss wrong dialogue and kind of jumping about kind of fight scenes and stuff like that? And it kind of, it didn't always gel and it didn't kind of always work. And the main protagonist kind of literally swears all the way through the game. So I was like, I was like, oh, how bad how bad can this be? Because you know Dark Souls. It's like, literally, yeah. I can put Dark Souls on, but I can kind of, I can turn the blood off on Dark Souls. And then it's literally just a guy with a sword fighting monsters, you know, and it's not, it's kind of, yeah, so they're hacking them up. But I could quite happily, you know, my youngest was like playing away in the background doing their own thing but I could kind of play it in the background and all they would hear was the occasional kind of growl of a monster and kind of like a sword kind of making contact and stuff like that and Forspoken, one of the issues that I have with Forspoken, and this would be with any game is the protagonist swears constantly all the way through the game not just slightly, it's full kind of you know full kind of F words and stuff like that all the way through Mm -hmm. So, and it's not just like, it's not just like slight X. So I'm set because I, I put it on and my, my, my youngest is 10. So there's no, it's not like a case that he hasn't heard these words in the playground. He's probably heard an awful lot worse and he could probably tell me a few phrases I don't even know myself. But like I had to, first of all, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll play it with the subtitles on. Because <laughs> I put the sound on and then she's like letting the mouth go. And I'm like, all right, okay, put the volume down. And then he's like, and then it's like, oh no, the subtitles are on because I like to have the subtitles on as well sometimes because I play games at night and you don't want the sound kind of volume up. But he's like, like reading this and it's like, I've got to get rid of this. So it's it's okay. But I find myself compelled to go through it. Mm-hmm. Do you know how it's like, and it's not like I've spent, it's not like I've dropped 70 quid on this and then... I, I'm going to finish this game because I spent 70 quid on this. I spent, I didn't even spend really kind of anything on it at all. But I feel compelled to play the game through it. And it's kind of grown on me in the same way a kind of like a bad 
straight to DVD kind of film. It's <laughs> it's one of the fascinating things about video games, though, isn't it? Is that the the length of time it takes to play through a game compared to a board game oh, is yeah. extremely different. You know, you have hour and a half, two hours versus 40 hours, yeah. 50 hours. And of course you've got video games that are shorter, but generally speaking, a video game has so much longer to grab you and to get you and to hook you. And because you want to play through it and you want to see how it ends, it keeps you there. And a bad video game can take up a hundred hours of your time whilst a bad board game is going to do well to take up more than two hours because you're just not going to get it out again and you, and you can just walk away from it but the thing with this exactly. game is it's just like if they cut out the dialogue and if they cut out the need to make the i don't know it's like i had i joked with my friends about this this is what's it says it's, it's meant to be it's like it's almost like you've asked a 12 year old to write a kind of an ad an adult themed kind of character mm-hmm. now to twelve-year-old, an adult, edgy character is a is a is somebody who runs about, you know, swearing all the time. Whereas to you and me, an adult, edgy character would be somebody, you know, looking at their bills and wondering how they're going to pay their mortgage. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like warning this. You know, this this show may contain adult themes, and it cuts to some, edgy cuts to somebody standing at as this. He's got, he got a McDonald's on the way home from work. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> It cuts to somebody at the Asda queue wondering if they've got enough money to pay for the shopping. I mean, that's an adult theme nowadays, you know, if you know what I mean. So that's kind of how it is. So I don't know. It's kind of, I am, do you know what? I'm going to end up playing it and then I'm going to become one of these horrific people who's a staunch defender of a terrible product, which it's like, it's no, it's not bad. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. Um, it's, it's funny because I was, I was sitting on a couch the other day um, watching a show with Sarah and we um we watch a lot of Korean TV these days. Oh, really? like we watch basically only Korean TV, and we were watching this um show, really really enjoying it. And we'd spent the day doing some work in the garden, like digging up tree stumps. So it, I was absolutely exhausted. Yeah. It was the first day of sun we've had for ages over here, and it was quite hot. And I was like, I really really fancy an ice cream. And I went to the freezer, <laughs> yeah, and there were no ice creams. Oh. And Sarah just looked at me, and she was just like. Well, it's tough, isn't it? You're just going to have to get on with it. And I was like, okay. And as we were watching this show, in the back of my head, the whole time was just this, I could get a McFlurry delivered from McDonald's. I could get a McFlurry delivered from McDonald's. And you talk about edgy. And I was there, and I just kept looking at her. And I was like, how's she going to respond to the concept of getting a McFlurry from McDonald's? So then, 20 minutes later, that's it, right? The, the, the things come in. It's happening. So I get my phone out and I look at it and I was like, okay, I'm going to order a McFlurry and get it delivered to my house. You know, a, a fully grown man. And this is what I'm going to do. And I was like, I'm not going to tell Sarah, yeah. but I'm also going to buy one for her. So when they turn up, it will be a nice surprise because then the ice cream is here. So I put it in and then it comes back and it says, you know, um, small order extra delivery charge and the small order extra delivery charge was more than the cost of a mcflurry (laughs) so i realized that if i bought a third mcflurry then it would actually end up being cheaper and that way we could like (laughs) cut it in half and put it into our things so here i am 
And now suddenly, not only am I just having an ice cream, but I'm buying three ice creams, <laughs> one of them for someone who may not want the ice cream. And we placed the order. So we're watching the show. Yeah. And in my head, you know, you hear the little beeping updates. And I was like, great, it's going to be here soon. Yeah. Getting excited. Yeah. And then the guy knocks on the door. So I was like, oh, do you want to grab it? Like, you know, surprise. Like Ta-da. Sarah goes off and gets it. Yeah. She comes back looking at this bag, looking at me. And then she opens it and she was like, did you order a McFlurry? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she takes this tray out yeah. and then she looks at me and is like, how many did you order? And I was like, funny story. And she was like, why have you ordered six? And I was like, what? And they'd given us double accidentally mispacking them. So suddenly we've got an entire ice cream store of ice creams and we've got six different McFlurries on the side with like five different toppings. So at this point I'm like, we can scoop different toppings off and make our own combinations of these things. And it was like, so I felt more than edgy in that moment as an adult that's the having six mcflurries delivered to my house it's like buying a bag of sweets and they're just sitting <laughs> eating it in front of the telly yourself kind of thing oh. i'm surprised and just to let everybody know that uh that uh frank's next game called the ice cream stall will be shipping to backers <laughs> uh, in fully sealed plastic bags over kind of like the next over the next kind of six weeks or whatever um <clears throat> One of the things that, because there's a, a, I don't know, there's kind of a, I look through my back episodes and there's like a class of certain people that I remember that, that I remember speaking to and they all stick out and I'm kind of like, oh, you know, but I remember at the time there was like kind of Lewis at Braincrack, um, Cesara Alica, um, Peter Blenkern. Uh, and yourselves who kind of all kind of came around at the kind of around about the same time as each other you kind of all hit that kind of you could say the kind of the golden kickstarter hour where it seemed to be possible to go from zero to creation without kind of like having to spend thousands and thousands of pounds to kind of hit the kind of the market and the kind of the market and train now obviously uh ITB are no longer a thing, um, and I'm not going to touch on that. But uh, um, but Cesar has gone down the line of kind of 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 signing on kind of designers. They're starting to kind of publish other people's games. Um, Lewis at Brain Crack is the same thing. He's also mm-hmm. kind of publishing other games as well. So with you saying that you're going to be releasing a game kind of every kind of twelve to eighteen months. Has it crossed your mind to say, well, maybe let's see what else is kind of out there and maybe pick up or sign on kind of other games? Or are you fairly kind of like, no, the the games that are coming out of the city of games are going to be kind of all going to be a kind of like a a Frank West joint kind of thing? It's 100% possible that I will publish other people's designs. And actually, um, there's someone I've been talking to recently. I say recently, I've been talking to them for a long time about it as a possibility in the future. But I 
um, it's not something that I need to do. It's not something that I kind of sit there and go, my goodness, like I really want to publish someone else's design. It's something yeah. where if the right circumstance came along, then I would. Now, the thing that's really important to keep in mind here is firstly, um, all of my games are set within the City of Kings universe. Yeah. And they all interconnect. So whatever that game is, it would have to be something that could be pulled into the universe and make sense within the universe. Secondly, all of my games are very puzzly. Like that's kind of my thing, right? All my games are very different in terms of how they play mechanically. Yeah. But I would say at the heart, they all have a deep puzzle kind of in them. And that doesn't mean that all my games need to be like that. But it definitely means that if a new game was designed with someone else, I would need to very, very like be very confident that I could pitch that to my audience and they would be receptive of that design. Yeah. Um the third thing is, as I said earlier with Rising Blades, I have to be able to stand in front of you, look you in the eyes, and tell you that this game is the best that it can be. So for me to take someone else's design, I would have to really truly love that design and be 100% confident that I'm as passionate about it as the designer is yeah which don't get me wrong is very possible but it's very very hard so it means that my my requirements for a design that I would publish that isn't my own design mm -hmm. are probably much much higher than other people's and it doesn't necessarily mean that the games has to be better but it means it has to hit certain boxes that other publishers wouldn't be requiring of so I don't think it's impossible and it's something that might happen it's something that in the future I might explore more but for the time being it's not something that I'm like actively pursuing yeah 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 with you um I mean, we digressed a little bit to video games, but is there and have you considered with the success of the Isle of Cats looking at like some kind of app-based type game version of it? It's it's a funny one because for me, I come from a tech background. Yeah, right? I yeah. was a programmer for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I designed video games before I designed board games. Yeah. And it's something that I've considered a lot. I've considered a lot with actually City of Kings because I feel like City of Kings would work very well in that format with the kind of the amount of overhead that you kind of manage. It would be a nice system with the randomization of creatures and so on. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I had a catch due to the, the demand. But at the moment, it's not something I want to prioritize because my fundamentals are I want to optimize everything I do. Yeah. I want to do everything. And I want to do everything quickly and efficiently. And that means that every single task that comes up, I measure it based on how much time and effort is it going to take from me and what is the return value of that. So here is an example. I release one game every 12 to 18 months. Last year, I spent 51 days at conventions. So if I spent effectively two months at conventions and I'm releasing a game, you know, say every 18 months, that's a ninth, right? So that's over 10% yeah. of that 18 month period yeah. I have spent at conventions. So if you then look at, you know, 
a Kickstarter, you know, my Kickstarters have all raised £300,000 plus. So you can look at them and go, and those games obviously have then gone on to generate more money through other stuff. So at that point, you're talking a game is generating hundreds of thousands of pounds. So is me spending two months at conventions, that time, can that be equated to delaying a game by two months? You know, if I brought a game forward two months sooner, would it create more value or not? And the measurement there is very, very hard with a lot of things. So I have a secondary factor, which is fun. You know, how much do I enjoy it? Is it something that makes me happy? Is something makes less money, but I enjoy it? So going to conventions, then I will opt to do that because I want to enjoy what I'm doing. So conventions are valuable because I enjoy them. And as such, the financial input from or income from them isn't as critical. But when it comes to making a video game version of Art of Cats, am I going to enjoy that? Is that going to be a fun thing? Is sitting there and programming it going to be enjoyable? Is hiring a team of programmers and managing them and going through all of those delays and things that come with programming projects going to be an enjoyable experience? And is that going to be worth that finance? So there is definitely an argument of just give it to another company and let them do it. And basically I'm not involved and therefore it happened. But then at that point it's kind of like, well, it's not me making a video game then, right? It's someone else making a video game and I get some royalties from when it sells. So there's a lot of lines between how involved do I want to be yeah. and how much am I going to enjoy that time? What is the financial side of that time? And at the moment, it generally falls back to, I'd rather just work on my next board game yeah. because the next board game is what excites me. You know, like Race to the Raft, I am so, so, so desperate to get that game out into the world because I love it. I'm so, so, so deeply in love with that game. But the interesting thing with Race to the Raft compared to all of the games that I've made so far is, and this is somewhat by the nature of the design, it's a game that you need to play. And until you play it, you don't get it. And that's because it is so different to other games that are out there. There's something that when you look at it on a table, you have no idea what you're going to do or how it's going to work. If you play a lot of games, you look at them on a table, you can immediately start identifying core concepts and getting it. Whilst with Racer Off, it's very easy to teach. You know, it's two minutes to teach that game. I can't wait to be at conventions. It'll be the easiest game to teach at conventions. (laughs) But you have to go through that two minute thing. And I can't wait because the people, like everyone who plays it, they get hooked and they just want to play it more and they want to try that next level. Mm. And I had reviewers and, you know, we talk about reviewers and how much they play games, you know, if they play it once or whatever before they do that review. I had reviewers where I sent them 20, 25 of the scenarios because I wanted them to see like a full like range of different types of things. Yeah. And they came back to me and said, can they have more? Cause they've played all of them. <laughs> and they had played the game 25 times. And I was just like, I don't expect you to play it 25 times, you know? <laughs> like, and, but it was that hook, right? People got hooked into it and they want to play it more. And there's something about that game. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm getting distracted here, but I just, 
I enjoy that next game and getting it to people. Yeah, and yeah. Playing that is really impactful. So yeah. things like video games would be great, but it's not a priority at the moment. I suppose. I suppose the other thing is is the is the fun aspect because if you take a if you take a board game and you put it into a video game space, does it does it how much of the the kind of the key kind of handwork are you removing from the game? And the individuality, and I'll give you an example. Um, I I learned to play cartographers by playing the app. Interesting, right? Because I, I just wanted a quick glow. Well, this is how we're going to breeze it. But mm-hmm. I would never go back and play the app. I would play the app if I was kind of like just wanting to do something for like ten minutes. I wouldn't. I would. I would. Mu- I much rather personally prefer to play the physical version because i think one of the core components of something like cartographers is the individuality that you can bring to the game that yes you're told to draw a forest or yes you're told Mm -hmm. to draw like you know a mountain or yes you're told to draw like houses but you can ask the same five people to illustrate that on their little kind of grid pad and they'll come back to you with like five five different illustrations you're guaranteed on that so sometimes i think um And, and you see this, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, I think in practice, when we look at kind of video game adaptations to board games, some of them work or seem to work quite mm-hmm. well, and some of them just don't. <laughs> so, and, and so much of this, it comes down to what the essence of the game is. Yes. So, yeah, I, I keep going back to it, not deliberately, but it just happens to fit in. But with Race to the Raft, Race to the Raft, I define as a social puzzle game because it is a cooperative puzzle game, but it creates this social experience. And the the joy of that game is you're sitting at the table yeah, and there are moments where you're not allowed to talk where someone does a certain thing. So you, you empower them to make the decision and you do your discussions and then you give them the opportunity and you shut up, you let them take the thing they reveal the thing, and then they play the thing. And that moment, sitting at the table, watching them, yeah. knowing they are making the most horrible, terrible decision <laughs> as humanly possible, and that you can do nothing about it, and you grit your teeth, you start screwing your hands all around the table, eye contact where people are looking at each other going, are they really going to do this? And the person's aware of it. They can feel <laughs> that pressure in the room, but they don't know the better option. They look at it and go, I'm going to do this because it is the best option that I can see. see. Yeah. And that moment yeah. is incredible, but you can't have that over a computer when you're not sat there with each other because it's about those eye contacts is about those shaking hands it's about those kind of gritting teeth and it doesn't come across in the same way don't get me wrong some elements do but it is not the same experience so for a game like that you will never have a digital version that gives that experience it would always take away from it Mm. and for me that means that there won't be digital versions of that game because of that and i feel like with games you definitely get that some games just work really well they naturally progress into a digital version or into a physical version and work perfectly you know uh, um 
great video game example in my eyes would be real-time strategy games. So games like Command and Conquer or StarCraft, these games where you start with one building and within 15 minutes you have 200 soldiers that are marching across a map and individually fighting against the other person's 200 soldiers. They've built up 45 different buildings. Each building can build a different type of unit, upgrade different combinations of units. But the joy of that is that quick element of seeing everything expand, grow, and having all these countless units. And if you bring that into the board game world, it works, but it loses that magic because you yeah. don't have hundreds of things. You don't have the real-time decision-making. In a video game, you're there, and you're out mining and chopping down some trees, and I've got two soldiers that I've slipped round behind the back of your base, and you don't know they're there, and you start moving your army out, and I see with one of my guys, your army marching across the map, so I pull these two guys in from behind, and suddenly all of your workers are dead, and you're completely screwed. But you can't have that moment in a board game, because you can't hide it because you can see it. You can see it yeah, there. Yeah, and as soon yeah. as you try to mimic that hiding, it complicates it. Yeah. And it can be done. I've played around with ideas for that, but it subtracts from the experience and it never truly gives you that feeling that the video game will. Yeah. So it's best in my eyes to not try and mimic that, but to be inspired by it and do something different. Yeah. I mean, I was playing, I was playing um, Kill Team for the first time on Friday at the club. Mm. And yeah, that's exactly it. It's like we all laid out our kind of our various squads of guys. You obviously start off by being behind cover, but there was no real way of me surprising the guys, mm. the people who we were playing against across the table because they, they just had to lift their head up. There was no kind of, you know, there was no fog of war. There was no kind of surprise attack. It was basically like, okay, I know you're behind that building. I either sit here and wait until you stick your head out and then, I, you know, I take a shot at you or you, we kind of just charge towards each other and see what kind of happens with the, with the, with the, with the kind of game, which is, yeah. So I can see, yeah. I, I think, I think um, sometimes people need to stop and go, it's the Jeff Goldblum, isn't it? It's like, yes, we can, but should we actually try to adapt this into kind of like a board game? And sometimes, kind of, I guess, kind of vice versa. Um, where are things with kind of Race to the Raft at the moment? Where are you in terms of kind of manufacture, shipping, the backers getting the games? How how close are you to kind of like the checkered the, the, the checkered flag with regards to that? So we are just going on the boats now. So production is done. It is on the boats or going onto boats mm -hmm. and traveling across the waters. So we're in a really good place. The um, fulfillment date was set to September and I actually have just announced that I'm bringing that forward to July because we are, um, we're about seven weeks ahead of schedule. And at the moment, because we're getting closer and closer to shipping it, obviously I need to make people aware of that. So we are actually really, really ahead. We've had zero problems, zero issues, zero delays, and it's been great. It's been one of the most pleasant manufacturing experiences I've ever had because we are super ahead. Everything's gone well. And, you know, don't get me wrong. There's still plenty of time for boats to sink and things to go horribly wrong. But as of today, um, yeah, we're about two months ahead which is great as of today everybody is touching wood 
instead of touching cloth, as they would say. But I mean, you're... as long as it's touching wood and not water, I'm fine. <laughs> you're going to end up with like threads on uh, Board Game Geek. People, people will write songs about you and say, yes. Frank West, the man who delivered his Kickstarter kind of two months early. And folk will go, it's, that's not true. Like, it's it's one myth. of those things, though. I, years ago, had a shipment of games going to an area. I won't go into too much detail for various reasons, but I got a phone call saying the games hadn't turned up. And I was like, okay, and looked into it. And it turned out that armed robbers had attacked the truck... And stolen it. And in my head, the first thing I thought in my head was like, obviously, you know, hopefully everyone's okay, blah, blah, blah. The second thing in my head was, how am I going to convince anyone that armed robbers have hijacked their order? And the third thing I thought to myself was, That's amazing. could you imagine being the poor sod who's just hijacked a truck at gunpoint gotten home and found a hundred boxes of the city of kings which are these <laughs> giant like huge heavy board games that are so unavailable that as soon as you sell them i'm gonna know that you did it because no one else has got them. <laughs> but then on, on the flip side of this what happened was the robbers in question actually discovered a love of board games and thus <laughs> And thus, as well as hanging about and planning out their latest kind of heist and caper, they started a kind of a board game club for the local kind of mafioso. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, they, they then they tried with tried and failed to try and get a copy of The Godfather, Corleone's <laughs> Empire by Simon Games. Um, <clears throat> which but yeah, needless to say, um, ever since that, I have, I've got to the thing of, until the games are in well, people's we hands, there's always something that could go wrong. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's well. Hopefully, people will have them uh, in their hands very shortly, and they shall be racing to the raft. If people, if if people want to race to your raft, <laughs> wow. Um, but, um... I can't even. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. Where do you exist on the internet webs? Where can we find you on the internet webs, Frank? So if you go to thecityofkings.com, you will find um, all sorts of things. You will find all my social media, mm. and you'll find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, under City of Games HQ. But as I say, there are links on the website, thecityofkings.com. On that website as well, um, you will find my publishing lessons blog, which has about 150 articles now on publishing how to get into the industry and how to kind of do manufacturing shipping logistics so if you're someone who's ever been interested in doing this stuff then feel free to check it out and i am happy to answer questions in the comments on there do that because it's it's some there's some fascinating stuff within that within those series of articles and they're published on a regular basis across your facebook as well which is always always interesting um we shall of course collect those links together and we shall put them in the show notes so that we've got notes to show if you want to keep an eye on what we're up to then just go to the internet webs and search for we're not wizards you shall find us where the sun is shine and where the stars glow and where there are places to find and places to go and uh, on places like apple podcasts and the likes um just a quick congratulations and shout out to this game is broken who won the bgg 
award for the best podcast. Um, and congratulations also to uh, Liz from Beyond Solitaire who managed one of the runner-up spots. Um, and and uh, yes, both absolutely fantastic and I'm extremely delighted that they, they managed to, to get where they were probably without my help, but I'm going to try and claim credit where I can. Um, if you like what you've listened to tonight, then please consider a couple of things. Tell other people about us that we exist because uh, it didn't work for these awards because nobody voted for us. And secondly, um, go to the Apple Podcast and drop us a rating or review or on the podcast catcher of choice. And if you are going to be giving us a rating or review, don't give us 10 stars. I know it's been four years, Frank, but the joke has not changed. Uh, because it makes us. It used head. to be five stars. No, so, you know, no, you're going up in the world. It's not. It's that you've ruined it. Don't give us ten stars because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us no stars because it makes us cry. Give us something in the middle, like five, because it's average, and we're just a little bit average. That's the whole point. So they give us five because it's in the middle, but five's actually the maximum. Why do I need to keep explaining this? I probably need to change this joke because it's just really not working. I think you can't do six because it only goes up. It only goes up to five. That's you know, the whole, you can't you can try six, but it'll just go no unless Have you noticed a lot of things do go to six now though? They actually do because it's a trick where they allow you to rate it out of six because it allows more people to give it a five and a majority of people think five is the best. So even though it's actually five out of six, it's five and you go, Oh, they've got five out of five, but it's not. So you know, maybe six is the, the new five. It's fine as long as I get some kind of rating. I mean, I was we hit, we hit, we were in the we were in the chart, iTunes chart, the top hundred games uh, chart today. So that was pretty cool. So I was quite happy with that. It is, it is. Um, There's only a couple more things to do. The first thing is to thank Frank very, very much for venturing back on after all this time. Thank you, thank you very much, Frank. Um, It was a pleasure to catch up and chat with you again. Uh, well, thank you for letting me come on. It was great to get out of my um, my dunce corner and be welcomed back onto the show after all these years. After you know, all these years. Uh, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger. And so that's the thing. It's like, oh, you need to come back on again soon. And then like, <laughs> and then it cuts, to the, <laughs> cuts to the title card four years later. It's like, a, it's like a Ron Howard film. You know what I mean? And Richard said that uh, Frank could come back on in the next six months. He didn't <laughs> come back on in the next six months. He didn't come back on until four years. Um, I'm here with Frank Jr., son of Frank, <laughs> exactly. who I spoke to 29 years ago. Exactly. It's been 37 years. Um, <laughs> is it 87? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but there's one thing to remember is that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Frank? We are definitely not true wizards. Not true. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and, and now I know why I wasn't on for four that's years. Why you won't, and that's, why, that's why you won't be on. Your cats won't be on. <laughs> you know, your game won't be on. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Frank. Say goodbye, Frank. Goodbye. And goodbye from my cats that do exist. They, goodbye. Don't, they don't exist. It's just hand puppets. He does a show every Saturday at the promenade from 12 o'clock. It's pretty good but there's too much clawing. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes, and uh, make something awful. But until the next time, 
Frank West. Goodbye. A wizard is never late. Is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to.